It's the latest episode of the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Edwin Gilson, and this week my guest was Dr Josh Cameron of the School of Health Sciences, who discusses his background and current work in the field of mental health, what resilience means to him, and his thoughts on that controversial term, snowflake. Enjoy the podcast. Dr. Josh Cameron, thanks very much for joining me in the studio. Um, I kind of wanted to start with a significant shift in your in your younger years, um, which has led you to where you are now, basically. Um, you studied history with French and history at BA and MA, MA level, respectively, I think I'm right in saying, but then changed lanes to become an occupational therapy technical instructor in psychiatric hospitals in London. Um, what prompted that change exactly? Uh, I was too scared to become a school teacher. <laughs> I had a place to, uh, to do that. And then I thought... Um, no, it's not for me. And I wasn't sure what was for me. And I uh, worked in the NHS, actually, in um, IT and information processing and something called medical audit, uh, looking at results of uh, ear surgery and uh, training staff um, in very um, basic computer skills. It was in the early days of Windows and using a mouse. Um, and I didn't find that that rewarding, but from that, I um, then moved up to London and uh, found a very similar job in a psychiatric hospital training um, patients uh, in, um, or service users, they call them patients, in, in using uh, computers. And it was much worse paid, but much more challenging and a much broader range of skills. Some people much more skilled, some people less skilled. Um, um, and, and that's, I suppose, that, that was what happened. I mean, I, I did history not to do a career, but because I think history is important and, you know, interesting and is all about understanding the world. Hmm. And in some ways, for me, uh, what I've done subsequently has been in all parts of my life about understanding the world and seeking to make an impact upon it. OK, we'll probably get into that a bit more later. But um, what do you kind of remember from those early days then working in the psychiatric hospitals? What are your kind of lingering memories from that time? Well, although I'd worked in the health service um, uh, prior to that for uh, for at least a couple of years, I'd, I'd never worked in in a uh, um, mental health services. And uh, to be honest, the first time I went up on a ward, I was scared. And then subsequently, I reflected um, that I was quite embarrassed to be scared, as that it was a much more scary place for people to be who were on the wards, um, uh, often particularly in those days, and still unfortunately today, in open dorms with uh, limited privacy. Um, uh, but that was, that, that, that was some of my first feelings. Uh, but then I started um, uh, enjoying the work, enjoying the people, and meeting a great deal of honesty there and, um, and learning a lot myself um, um, from um, people who had been through some very tough times and were finding ways, attempting to get support of others to overcome it. I know a lot of your work, even to this day, has that kind of community focus as well, doesn't it? Um, has that direct link to society always been important to you in your academic life? Uh, yes, yes. I, I, I don't... For me, everything is about applying things, about taking learning, whether that was in terms of history or whether that's in terms of uh, mental health recovery, um, uh, doing things um, to help people uh, feel that they can um, make a difference to their lives and positively impact on the world around them. Um, um, so, yes, that has been important. And actually also what's been important is not always thinking that the solution lies inside the person themselves. Sometimes it's a situation they're in that needs to be changed. Um, there's an awful lot of, the word we use is responsibilising individuals for their own recovery. 
um, and certainly individual efforts um, um, and um, uh, determination can make a difference but actually that's often nurtured from outside and people need opportunities and supports and systems and services and resources to enable people to recover to enable people to make a difference to their communities. Sure I mean I know mental health and employment in particular as well as always been a big interest of yours a big research interest and it was the focus of your PhD which you carried out here at the University of Brighton, and from right in saying, can you trace the root of that interest, that kind of connection between mental health and employment? Yes, well, I was when I started um, my doctoral studies, actually, I was working part-time as a lecturer and part-time as an occupational therapist within mental health services. And the my real concern was I was working on an inpatient unit. And at the time, there was a lot of attention to work in relation to people who were using community mental health services. But there wasn't, didn't appear to be any attention or hardly any attention to to work for those people who are admitted to inpatient units, uh, despite the fact that about 20% of people had jobs and it was a high-risk time for people to lose jobs as people lost touch w- with employers. Yeah. Um, I was particularly struck by w- one encounter, um, somebody who worked for um, transport services um, who uh, experienced severe depression, had attempted suicide, was admitted, was discharged... Um, then was readmitted after attempting to go back to work. Um, and actually his employer had been, you know, attempted to be quite understanding, had, had thought, I know, we'll make things easier. They thought we'll, we'll um, leave him to do, um, we'll set him up to do routine tasks. We'll uh, put him uh, on shifts where there's, you know, it's very quiet, where there's no one else around. Um, and, you know, so that they, they did this with all good intention. But actually it was the opposite of what was needed. Um, uh, what was needed was he, when I spoke to him on his readmission, the, the first time I'd met him, um, actually he wanted absorbing tasks and he wanted people around him. Um, so actually his employer wanted to be understanding, but actually, you know, there needed to be some kind of conversation um, with this man or we often might call it an assessment, an understanding of, of what supports would help him and what wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and very often that's the case. It's not always the case of sort of, um, you know, um, good people, bad people. It's about understanding and actually thinking about what things are going to help in terms of changing somebody's um, um, uh, work routine environment, either temporarily or permanently. Mm, And there's no one-size-fits-all approach to that, I suppose, is there? No. Um, no. So how would you go about assessing what individual needs what circumstance, I suppose, in in the workplace? Uh, Speak to them. Yes. (laughs) Listen to them. And not just speak to them, but speak to them and listen to them. Sometimes people start off with a a sort of, uh, oh, well, this condition means that somebody needs to come back in four weeks with uh, half-time working for the first two weeks, and that is a one-size-fits-all. We need to listen to people and we need to understand their situation and actually work out whether it's, you know, things that the person needs to do, whether there's things in the work environment, and that might be the physical environment or it might be people people around them in terms of understanding that needs to change. Um, and so to gain an understanding of the individual worker, their work tasks and their environment. Okay, sure. I mean, we hear this word resilience used a lot in conversations about mental health now, particularly in relation to young people. Um, how do you approach that term in your work? Is there a particular interpretation of resilience that you have explored? Uh Yes, actually. And it was in the process of doing my PhD that I first encountered the term. And it's I mean, it's a contested term. And initially, actually, I was quite sceptical of the term because um, perhaps one of the most common understandings of it is a kind of pull up your socks, stiff up a lip um, uh, Mm. approach to things. 
but I was encouraged by um, colleagues such as uh, Professor Angie Hart to actually engage in some other literature of people who've done serious work around uh, uh, resilience theory and practice to actually see that, that people who are, who are doing serious resilience building work actually don't see resilience as an internal trait, but rather in a systemic way that resilience can involve uh, internal internal resources but an awful lot depends on the environment around people okay. um, and actually uh, to ask for help is a resilient move um, yeah so a lot of your work on resilience has focused on that contextual side rather than the on the individual like you said respond what was the term that you used about resp- responsibilizing yes yeah. yes yes although actually one of the things that helps us feel strong and able to cope is support around us. And some of these characteristics that people might say are individual characteristics are often nurtured and supported. So I'm not denying the role of important things like hope um, and determination, but to recognise that those things aren't things that somebody's born with, but things which can be nurtured and fostered by environments around people. So it's kind of giving Um, people the tools to be resilient in themselves, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, actually, I I did some um, uh, research work with the uh, Sussex Recovery College, a mental health recovery college, um, and uh, we actually co-developed a building resilience course uh, along the lines of uh, this approach to resilience. And uh, um, I'm always struck by, in one of the research interviews we did, um, somebody said at the end, uh, they said, well, at the beginning, I used to think resilience was all about, you know, coping with it on myself, uh, by myself, and that to ask for help was a sign of weakness, whereas now I see it as a sign of strength, using the tools and the people around me. Um, and that, that really touched me, and that, that, that actually, you know, um, really helped crystallise the sense that actually, rather than abandon the word resilience, we should, you know, reclaim it from those who would try and responsibilise individuals to be resilient, mm-hmm. and rather look at, you know, how we can develop resilience through our communities, our collectives, and through society. And do you think that definition is changing then in terms of how the public view it from being that pull up your socks idea towards a more a wider contextual perspective um in some places yes i mean i, mean, I think it's a constant it's a constant engaged debate in a way um but but it but it's something that um we um at, at the university of brighton at the center of resilience for social justice and we deliberately put those two words uh, uh together in our, uh, our, our our core are very much emphasizing that uh, um resilience and social justice aren't, aren't opposites mm. but rather that you know social justice involves social resilience um um, and, uh, and and vice versa. And w- I mean, when you hear the kind of term like snowflake bandied around then by certain people, would you say that was a case of responsibilising mental health issues in that way and kind of putting the emphasis on the individual rather than society around them? A- absolutely. And, and it's it's blaming. I mean, an example often I, I, I share with students um, in, in terms of mental health is that for some people, indeed, even some, some models of re- resilience in academic thought talk about... Um, it's always resilience, quite rightly, in relation to something, in relation to an adversity. Now, in some models of resilience, that adversity is taken as a, a constant and as a given, um, whereas in our model of resilience, actually, sometimes it's the adversity that needs to be changed. And the example I, I, I like to use, actually, partly for my mental health work and the collaborative work in the recovery college, is uh, the example of mental health discrimination and stigma. Actually, I don't think it's ethical or even that it works to say to somebody, well, you need to learn how to cope with stigma or discrimination. Um, Actually, what people need faced with stigma or discrimination at work is support um, uh, in order to challenge it and to change it, not to be told, "Okay, you need to change how you think so you can put up with it. Mm. Actually, that's an example of of an adversity that needs to be challenged or transformed. And has a lot of this work that you've you've done and you've been talking about stemmed from a sense of 
injustice from your own perspective, I suppose, like a kind of deep sense that people are being blamed for these problems as opposed to society? Like, can you, is that a kind of personal thing that you, you dwell on and, and that makes you, makes you angry, I suppose? Uh, I suppose so, yes. I mean, and I suppose my in, interest in history was always in terms of trying to understand the world, how it's got to where it's got, why it's got there, and actually was always interested in, in times when people and, and movements when people were seeking more justice, more rights, um, um, whether whether that's uh, um, against all, all, all different forms of oppression, yes, and that those have been the periods of history I've been interested in, mm. and how people can affect change and make an impact. Sure, I mean that's, that kind of leads us on to the or the whole talk about resilience leads us on to the uh, Blackpool Resilience Revolution, mm. which uh, which you've worked on, and I believe you co you co lead, don't you? Um, could you please give us a summary of what that project entails? Because it's quite a long running project mm. as well, isn't it? Yes, well, what we're doing there, again, the word resilience has been used quite a lot in schools and sometimes it's been used um, in, a, in that way that I was criticising, the other sort of individualising way, getting school students to be resilient to the pressures of uh, exam stress and so on. Whereas what we're doing in Blackpool is actually trying to build resilient schools. So we're not, we're not seeking to um, uh, just work on individuals to cope with pressures, but rather to try and transform the ways in which schools work and to support um, uh, collaborative attempts to respond to things like bullying, to self-harm, uh, to promote mutual understanding, um, to bring students, um, um, young people, uh, parents, carers and teachers together to consider how they can change systems. Uh, and actually to go belong schools and, and to look at um, um, uh, um, social service systems and to look at the whole town. I mean, uh, there's a, um, mm. one of the striking things there is, is that there's a resilience pathway now through yeah. the centre of Blackpool really? with messages from our uh, resilience framework, oh. um, um, which is really inspiring actually to see it there, you know, both a metaphor and, and in real terms. Yeah, I was going to ask, have you kind of seen any palpable signs of progress? But I guess that, that is a big one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a big one. I mean, we're, we're um, uh, there's still a another couple of years to go in terms of seeing the results and uh, um, we're looking for results both in terms of uh, some sort of quantitative measures and it's hard to measure things like the resilience mm. but there are some measures that you can look for and qualitative measures I mean I'm going up there this Thursday actually to start to start uh, to prepare uh, colleagues we're working with in terms of interviewing young people and, and, and some of the practitioners involved uh, uh, in, in, in the project up there. Yeah I know you said it's difficult to measure the, the results almost but what is there any way what are the concrete ways that you can you can try and tell i mean it's a complex it's a complex intervention to use the jargon of what's going up there it's mm. not a randomized controlled trial um it's funded by the uh, national lottery as a sort of test and learn program so i mean what we will come up with is plausible explanation for the impacts that we as uh, observe we're using something called the value creation framework developed by one of our uh, visiting uh, professors uh, uh etienne wenger trainer and bev uh, wenger trainer um in which we're doing a mixed methods analysis uh to try and link the outcomes that we observe to some of the data that uh, we collect in terms of uh, uh, some of the measurement scales are about well-being in terms of incidences of self-harm in terms of issues of school exclusions and people being supported in the schools mm. and then trying to find comparator data in other areas and historical data okay. I mean we we can't um, you know we will you know be you know cautious in what we claim but we think by bringing together that with some rich and deep case studies and qualitative data that accounts that, that that we can see what works why it works and how it works and also okay. what doesn't work sure and why Blackpool is a case study then? 
well, uh, why Blackpool? Uh, Blackpool um, uh, Council um, uh, submitted uh, with the support of, uh, um, uh, and, and they were greatly taken by uh, um, uh, the Resilience Framework, uh, uh, submitted an application to the National uh, Lottery Head Start Programme uh, for funding to carry out a test and learn. And, 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 and uh, so, so they wanted to use the Resilience Framework because they wanted to use an ecological approach to that. Um, okay. um, so it's actually more they chose this approach and so that's uh, that's why uh, we're evaluating it. Blackpool uh, does have particular challenges. It has challenges. Uh, it's one of the, the poorest uh, um, um, local authorities it, in England. It has challenges around uh, uh, school, school exclusions, uh, but it also has a lot of assets and a lot of strength and the resilience is about mobilising strengths and assets. There is a very strong community feel there and that's what's incredibly inspiring about going up to these events where young people themselves are um, uh, making presentations, are teaching teachers, are teaching other professionals, are teaching us as researchers and are mm. being co-researchers too. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Like you as a, as a researcher, you keep learning about this, this area. <laughs> With every new young person you talk to, I suppose. Yes, I mean the the the, the, the research that, that that I value and the practice I value is one that recognises different types of expertise: academic expertise, practitioner expertise, and lived experience expertise. Mm. And indeed, many people have a combination of all three. We don't all fall neatly in, into no. those areas. Uh, too often in the past in research, there was academic expertise was privileged, and practitioner expertise and the lived experience expertise of people who are coping with adversity was devalued. Okay, and just going back to that that word snowflake i suppose it has become such a ubiquitous term now i mean i guess it's, it does come from some area of analysis whether regardless of whether you think that's a sound analysis or not um can that kind of terminology well a can that terminology be damaging to people who it's leveled at i suppose or a whole generation that's leveled at and b is there a degree of of truth not necessarily in in the word but in what the word connotates i suppose to be honest, I don't think so. No, no. Uh, I think um, too often some people, and only some people in older generations, have tended to criticise younger generations for not being able to cope. Mm. Um, so it's a generational um, divide thing, you think? Um, possibly, yes. Uh, and, and I think if you look back in history, there's always been a tendency um, for some people to do that. But only for some people to do that. There's always been people who've been inspired by the efforts of young people. Mm. And if anything, actually, today, some of the pressures on young people are greater than they ever have been. Mm. You know, pressures to grow up younger than actually they need to. Um, um, pressures from social media, um, um, the, the, the pressures of a, um, uh, an exam system um, uh, that, that is really very stressful, much more stressful than it was in our day, actually. I mean, I have far from snowflake, I have every admiration for young people, but also think we have a responsibility to try and actually um, w work with them to reduce some of those pressures because actually yeah. it's creating a crisis in young people's mental health and that'll just roll on to adult mental health. You think so? So, what in particular do you think is creating the crisis? Sorry, just that that blame on them, I suppose. I don't think it's just the blame on them. I think the blame on them actually gets in the way of solutions being found. I think there's pressures. I think there's pressures around schooling. I think there's pressures around work. There's pressures around um, um, all the time having an education system which has an emphasis on um, uh, achievement in 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 academic or exam terms, and actually um, um, an insufficient valuing of the learning. Um, okay. uh, and the personal growth aspects. Right. And what about, I'm just kind of thinking on a much kind of broader scale as well, if we're seeing, when you're talking about young people having certain anxieties, obviously what a massive one of that is 
is climate change and environmental breakdown. And we're seeing, you know, thousands of hundreds of thousands of people, young people take to the streets to protest about government inaction against that. I mean, is that a case of, of mass resilience to, in a response to that issue, would you say? Or Absolutely, yeah. yes. Okay. And, and I mean, actually, resilience is the word that's been used in relation to the environment. And when you think about the environment, actually, it makes no sense to think about resilience in terms of one system or people developing resilience to climate change. Mm. Rather, actually, we need to do something about it. And the resilient move is to try and change that. Yeah. And again, I think people like Greta Thunberg and the school strikes are absolutely uh, uh, inspirational. And actually, I think some of us... Are you know, uh, older people have been a bit shamed by our inaction on such issues. And mm. uh, no, no, I, I, I think that is a great example of collective resilience and of people saying, well, actually, we have to do something about it. It's not yeah. just about coping with a problem or accepting it as given. And that's an issue that could bridge, well, should bridge gen- generations as well, I suppose. And everyone's kind of working towards the same cause there, aren't they? Or, well, <laughs> we hope so. But Well, yeah. Uh, uh, Many people are, but not everybody. There's some people, um, mm. uh, um, I would argue, <laughs> yeah. some oil companies for whom yeah. don't have such a, um, uh, a or, or decide not to think about the long-term interest and instead think about the interests of the profits of those companies. That's yeah. my view. <laughs> yeah, no, you're completely right. Um, shall we move on to your teaching then? Oh, actually, no, I was going to ask one more thing about um, a little bit more of a personal one, I suppose. I mean, how does your work in this field impact your own mental health and how has it impacted your mental health over the years would you say i mean i wonder particularly in relation to your work about mental health and employment obviously um it could be quite close to home in some respects i suppose yes yes um um i mean i suppose at times it's been something that um has helped me notice and be aware of issues in my own life with my own work but there's also been other times when only subsequently have i realized when I thought I was getting repeated blouts, bouts of some flu-like thing, that I was experiencing some form of stress, etc. Yeah. And, and I was feeling it so physically that it, it's strange when you're in the middle of it, you perhaps sometimes don't um, know what's what's going on. And I didn't at the time label it that way. And maybe it wasn't labelled that way. But I think it it um, it shows a problem, a problem with labels. But mm. something I've always found inspirational and that was very um, uh, helpful is when you realise you're not alone... Um, uh, and when you're doing things collaboratively, and um, and that includes collaborative research, actually. One of the things that got me through my PhD, which was a, a challenging time, was the, was collaborating with people who had lived experience expertise and um, the support they provided, although that wasn't for, for, formally that their role. Um, mm. um, and um, no, no, that, that has helped. And do you think PhD students have a certain potential mental health burden because it can be quite independent and isolating i mean was that your experience in some ways yes it can be it can be yes and and although um uh taking a more collaborative approach to research does present extra logistical challenges it actually makes you a little bit less alone Mm, yeah Um, and 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 in all areas of our life if we find ways to be a bit less alone that's helpful indeed okay well moving on to your your teaching i think you've said it's one of your favorite aspects of your job what do you find most rewarding about it Ah, I love talking about ideas and practice, hearing people's examples from their life, students' examples from uh, when they've been on placement and they're coming back, um, uh, challenging ideas, thinking. It, it, it's, 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 it's enlivening um, um, uh, having, having, having it. I mean, we use something called the problem-based learning approach. So mm. that involves an active learning where we have a scenario, an issue, and we invite people to explore it, identify uh, uh, questions, um, and, and work out where best to go and look for those questions. It's exciting. Mm. And when you mentioned placements, what kind of placements do students undertake then? Is that a, 
is that an implemented part of the course? Uh, I mean, my, not all of my teaching, but a lot of my teaching is on um, what's called pre-registration occupational therapy courses. We have a, uh, a two-year um, master's course and, and a lot of our... Uh, what our students do is spend about a third of time in a, in a range of various health and social care placements, which might be the NHS or local authority, could be mental health, but also physical health services. But also we've, we've actually, our course has been one of the pioneers in, in developing a whole range of diverse placements, which can be in homelessness services, drug and alcohol services, uh, uh, prisons and, uh, uh, and so on. So it's always wonderfully rich, the, um, the experiences students bring back into, into our teaching so mm. you know they'll go on an eight-week placement and then they'll have a university-based module and we'll deliberately draw on some of their learning experiences and and, and, and support them to see the connections um, uh, between what they've experienced on placement and uh, um, uh, what they're learning at the university and when you talk about the problem-based is it problem-based learning problem-based learning yeah. would that entail students kind of reflecting on maybe their own mental health experiences or I guess some might be more comfortable doing that than, than others but um yeah, is that a factor? We encourage people to recognise, again, all those different forms of expertise, which can include recognising and should include recognising your own lived experience. But um, we also say it's about when, you know, we don't expect people to share things if they don't feel comfortable or able to. Mm. Um, I think we've all experienced things in our lives. Sometimes when we're in the middle of something, actually it can feel a bit too close to home sometimes to share with um, uh, people who we may or may not know that well. Yeah. Um, whereas other times, maybe once we've um, 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 there's been some distance and so on, we feel that we can reflect on it and we can share that. So we, we, never, mm. we never force people to do that. But we do encourage people to develop an awareness um, of um, what's impacting upon them so they can perhaps you know, understand what's their stuff and what's stuff that's happening around them. Okay, great. Um, do you want to try some lifestyle questions? Go on then. <laughs> Quick fire. I, I looked at these with a, yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, on other podcasts with a bit of trepidation. But, yes, yeah. well, yeah, these are the ones that people tend to struggle with the most, actually. Um, but the first one is, what advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? So what were you actually doing at 16 years old? Uh, what was I? I was um, doing things like going on CND marches oh, really? and nice. um, uh, feeling very worried about what was going to happen with the world and uh, whether the Cold War was going to lead to a nuclear war. Um, mm. uh, I was trying to act a bit too much of like a father to my brother, um, um, which was, of course, disastrous in terms of our relationship, <laughs> although actually this solved itself uh, uh, subsequently. Okay. Advice to myself? Well, actually, although I don't... Um, um, regret actually at all being you know doing things like that the cnd campaigning and so on but actually i, I think perhaps I, I i tried i felt i had to grow up younger than i needed to okay um, and um uh, perhaps to allow myself um uh, to remain uh, um not an adult for a bit longer what about your favorite place in sussex uh, anywhere up on the downs. I love Mount Caburn. Okay. Um, high up where you could see the sea, you could see the shapes of the hills um, and the winds blowing and, um, and the sun shining. Those... Uh, those places it took me several you know a long time a few years after being at, uh, in Sussex to discover those places yeah I think that's quite common isn't yeah. it it takes a while to <laughs> embrace them yeah uh, what about your perfect weekend would that also entail a, a hike somewhere or Something out in country or maybe, I mean, I, I quite like rowing on a rowboat at sea. Um, yeah. um, um, if I can get a hold of a rowboat anywhere, um, uh, uh, kayaking. So, so yes, somewhere out in uh, perhaps ideally a bit more wilderness than the Downs. I like the Downs, but I like something that's, that's a bit wilder um, yeah. um, uh, in Ireland or Wales, maybe. Um, and then with um, people close to me. 
um, some nice food um, um, uh, and drink, maybe a bit of music. Um, yeah. yeah, that would be a good weekend. We haven't actually touched on that, but I presume that you think experiences in nature, the, the likes of which you've just described, are positive for mental health as well. I mean, there's been quite proven studies about that, hasn't there, that link? Absolutely, yes. I mean, we know exercise is good for us, but we also know if that exercise is actually taking place in the countryside, it's even better for us. And yeah, um, yeah no, that's quite right. Of course. Uh, OK, what are you currently reading, listening to or watching? You can have all three of those or just one if you want. Uh, OK, well, um, I saw that and I thought it's going to find very popular. I'm, I'm currently reading Jung's autobiography, but the only reason why I'm currently reading it is it's taken me so long to read it. Not that I'm sort of <laughs> always reading things like that. I've been reading it for months and, okay. uh, and I'm, I'm not progressing very quickly. Uh, I've, um, um, I'm watching uh, Spiral, um, uh, the uh, French sort of detective programme, Listening to, well, I don't know. Um, I, I was reminded, I had just heard on the radio the other day, somebody who I haven't listened to in a while, John Martin um, and the song May You Never, it's called. And that's a, that's a wonderful song. OK, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I heard that yeah, one. That's good. Uh, and lastly, which three people would you invite to your fantasy dinner party? They can be uh, alive, dead or fictional. Right, well, this was interesting. I saw this one and actually I used to think this was a fun question, but I once went to a team day, not at this university mm -hmm. no, 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 um, so, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about this university but I won't <laughs> say where it was I went to a team day um, where this came up as a sort of exercise and and people in the team suggested a range of sort of pop stars, uh, film stars, um, uh, sort of um, often often campaigners for human justice and, uh, you know, good, worthy people, you know, nice people that sort of filled your, your soul with gladness. And then in all seriousness, the actual team manager said he would invite Hitler and Stalin. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked, as were other people, a, a silence. And that kind of has taken uh, uh, things out of this a bit. That's also made me think about sort of dynamics and works and uh, uh, in some ways it, it didn't surprise me but he was sort of saying that he wanted to learn about leadership from them so I suppose oh. my worthy answer would be perhaps some of the people who've campaigned against people like you know, yes. Hitler and Stalin yeah. um, but I suppose my honest answer would and I'm attempting at the moment to get in touch and see more of you know friends from a long time ago who I've lost touch with. Mm. That's a nice sensible answer. <laughs> Great thanks very much Dr Josh Cameron. Okay thank you. Cheers. Many thanks to Dr Cameron for his time and tune in next week for the next in our podcast series. You can find all of our podcasts by searching for University of Brighton on Spotify, Apple and many more podcast apps. See you next time.